everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Key, our 100th. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed. We started The Key more than three years ago in the teeth of the COVID-19 pandemic, with the goal of going beyond our daily editorial coverage to give our audience more insight into the impact the pandemic was having on colleges, employees, and students, with a particular focus on the more invisible students who often fly under the radar of journalists and campus leaders. As the pandemic's effects ebbed, the key has expanded its focus to other pressing issues in and around higher education. The list of our most listened to episodes among the hundred include conversations about turnover and burnout among college employees, student mental health, questions about the value of a post-secondary education, and of course, enrollment. But we've sustained a focus on the low-income, first-generation, and underrepresented minority students who colleges and universities often struggle to serve. Today's special episode features the return of the person who got this podcast started, Paul Fain. Paul was Inside Higher Ed's news editor in 2020, and he founded The Key and nurtured it through its first year. His new baby is The Job, a terrific weekly newsletter focused on the intersection of education and employment, where he continues to write about a lot of the subjects that he helped us explore through The Key. Before Paul and I kick off our conversation, here's a word from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is making this episode of The Key possible. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Paul, welcome to The Key. Welcome back to The Key, I should say. Thanks for having me, Doug. You were the uh, first proud parent. Uh, pretty, I guess I'd probably be the step parent. But I thought we'd start maybe by reminding people of the, quickly of the Genesis story, kind of what we were aiming to do with the podcast, and then we can go into how it's played out and, and some of the issues we've raised and some of the things we think there's still opportunity to explore. Congrats, first of all, for, for 100. Yeah. You know, as my parenting was brief, uh, I just had the baby face. So when you invited me, I thought back to when we started this. And it was May of 2020, as I'm sure you'll remember well. There was so much going on and such incredible hunger from Inside Higher Ed's readers for more that we tried to think outside of the box and do some stuff that, you know, really felt different to me in a fundamental level as a journalist. Like, I remember discussing this with you. If uh, you know a department puts up a guidance about some new funding, we would get it up immediately. Waiting a day was too long. And <laughs> the public service piece of it, that you know, getting the information, the raw information to people and not doing it in that formal article, which we also did, <laughs> people were reading those more than ever before. If I remember correctly, and as you know, anything about the pandemic's early days is a little foggy right now. And I think we felt like getting people, like real experts, talking about what's happening in real time and what it means for students was a worthwhile experiment. And it, w- it was also an experiment for us to deliver it to them in different ways, which was a pretty big change for us. And I do think our audience has responded to us bringing other people's voices, literally directly to them. 
you also decided, and I'm really glad you pointed us in this direction, to focus heavily on a very specific population of learners, particularly the low-income, first-gen, underrepresented minority students who tend to be a little more invisible in higher education and were disproportionately affected by the pandemic. I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that. I have a lot to say about that. But before I do, your point about doing different types of journalism, I hadn't thought about this until you said that. At Inside Higher Ed, you all host a lot of people and have these fascinating conversations that I was part of for 10 years. And sometimes I felt like, I wish we could use them more. You do use them during a time of just catastrophe, massive need for information. It felt like that. It felt like I hate to see things sitting on my reporter's notebook that's not out there. And I I remember feeling like nervous of trying something new, but thinking people are going to want more. And like it felt good (laughs) to get those things out there. Looking at those early episodes, I mean, we all think about what we got right and wrong about what was happening. But looking at it, it's like, oh, wow. I'm going to say by luck and and by having the right people on, you could see what we would find out six months later, you know, like the impact on community college students in particular. I just get really excited looking at all the community college experts, you know, uh, Karen Stout, Eloy Oakley, Steve Johnson, Sue Elsperman. That was just in like the first five episodes. And Steve Johnson at Sinclair, I'm a homer. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. So huge fan of him. But I remember him saying like, it's, it's going to be hard. Like there was signaling that the enrollment was going to be a problem for that sector. And and, you know, Michelle Asha Cooper, uh, Johnny Taylor, Laurel Espinosa were in those first few episodes talking about the, in particular, the toll that the pandemic was taking on low income and minoritized Americans. It, you, could, you could see the problem developing that we are still grappling with in real time. Totally. Now you've got me thinking about something I hadn't really thought about before. What we do as journalists most of the time is be a pass-through mm-hmm. and an um, interpreter and a sense maker, ideally, hopefully to in a good way, of what we hear from other people. What's been nice about the podcast to me is much more original source material and hearing from the people themselves and uh, who are really sort of much more at the front dealing with the issues. And I think that's that is a different kind of journalism. And and I think it's been really, I think it's been really useful for our audience. Are there other aspects of what you did during your time overseeing the key that have stuck with you and influenced what you've done since then in your current work? Absolutely. I went back and saw a couple episodes, listened to a couple episodes on where we had students. Uh, Marjorie had written a story about a class at CUNY, really powerful story. Just the the impact, the human impact on the people in the class who knew multiple people who had died. And then I talked with uh, two students, I think it was UC Davis, two sisters. And interesting, like the things that I wouldn't have written a story about as a sense maker, to your point, that kind of stuck with me. I remember the student from CUNY criticized with some real strength, what she called toxic positivity from administrators. And like, that's a concept. I, I'm not a young student living through the pandemic. I never would have thought of that. Like things like kind of random conversational aha moments. The, the two sisters from UC Davis 
were very frustrated and angry with higher ed for they thought not adequately wrestling with what was coming with the labor market, which is really weird and interesting. And I, again, was like, if you're a young person who's had your college experience disrupted, we kind of thought about that, but you're also extremely anxious about what's next. That, as you have continued to cover the mental health and anxiety pieces of that, I hadn't really thought that through. And, but to your question, yeah, I mean, uh, Johnny Taylor from Sherm I had on and he talked about what this, he connected it because Sherm is a human resources organization to, he connected education and work and made it more of a, a through line that felt like you need to pay attention to both in this moment in ways that I had never done before. But, you know, actually today in a presentation, I quoted Paul LeBlanc. Uh, from Southern New Hampshire from the podcast where he just, he said something very brief, but it was like, it, it's new. We were planning 10, 15 years out and this just compressed that all into a couple years. And like, that was probably of all the podcast episodes. That was the one thing that stuck with me the most, like the accelerated change you cannot underestimate. And, you know, again, like, I'm not sure I would have come up with a story to do that. But to hear, you know, someone like Paul LeBlanc saying, hey, guess what? That's how we feel was very powerful. Unexpectedly gone into a uh, a little bit into a conversation about sort of what journalism is and the different ways it can be done. But I do think that it is really important to bring people directly to readers. And we do that in events that we put on. And as you said, you know, we had a college president in here this morning and we we constantly are talking to those people. And I don't know, I think our filter, the filter we use, I think it protects readers from some a lot of wreck uh, sometimes, but hopefully we're bringing the best of it to people. But I don't know. I do think that there are insights that um, it's better to let the people who have them originally <laughs> to make them and to to uh, get them to expand on them. And when I think about how we have tried to figure out how to keep the focus on the, the original students that we were focused on, of it hasn't been hard because those learners have continued to be a focus of the public discourse and the issues that have to be explored in higher education. And it's been fascinating in some ways to watch. I think we're seeing increasing focus on those previously less visible learners, partly because of the affirmative action decision, partly because of the work on social mobility that we see researchers and others doing. But I think a lot of the questions around higher education continue to be around how well it is fulfilling not just higher education, but the post-secondary education and training ecosystem that, that you focus on as well are serving the the less well-off people in our society. And those are the places we're trying to keep pressure on as journalists and ask good and hard questions about. And the key is another way we do that. So no, that's uh, really well said. And I it's not like our country didn't have a severe wealth and income gap before the pandemic, but the pandemic obviously made it worse and made it much more clear to everyone. Like, you know, as tough as it was having a young child at home and, you know, I achieve a busy job. It was a lot easier for me 
than a first responder or somebody who works in a warehouse. Like it, all those things that it just brought into such clear relief. You have to adjust in a moment of incredible change and tension. Like the old medium wasn't enough. I couldn't be the filter that I was before, the, the sense maker with as well because it, first of all it was just too fast like the first episode was david bame from the community college association and amelia parnell from naspa talking about a 6.3 billion dollar emergency aid grant from the federal government like that's news you can use like hey folks the government is throwing a massive amount of money emergency aid in this case to try to help the vulnerable students who are falling out of the system you can do a story on that but I kind of felt like it was time to step back and to the extent that we could put them in direct contact with readers. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. It's been really interesting to figure out how to use the different medium to supplement and expand the reach and, and depth of what we do in our news articles and opinion section every weekday. One of the ways we've tried, one of the ways I've tried to use the podcast the past couple of years is to dig more deeply into a topic or a news development that we may have covered briefly in our news pages or earlier. Maybe it's coming back to the latest enrollment numbers from the National Student Clearinghouse that we did a high-level analysis of the day they were released, but then digging into the community college data with on-the-ground insights from someone like Joe Garcia of the Colorado Community College System, or tying together a set of small developments into something larger, like the episode you joined for earlier this year about whether for-profit colleges were on their last legs. You know, those blurred lines that started to blur during the pandemic or, or, you know, went fully blurry are still there. Like I remember obviously virtual events became very, very different and important <laughs> for people in our world during that time. And then I, I started thinking like the difference between a podcast or even like a webcast and a news story, everything started to get more blurry and like, you have done a good job as a, as a listener. I've you know paid attention to how you've kind of crafted the arc of the conversation in a way that resembles more a good piece of journalistic writing than like the early pin. You know, some of those ones I did have two guests, but it wasn't usually strung as well. And like the respondent, you know that that kind of piece but again like i'm not too hard on my, ourselves because it was so crazy like i was i looked at one of my favorite episodes was uh tim white the then chancellor of cal state who they made the decision to go online in the fall if you remember like they were yep. the first biggie to do that and our reporter lila burke did a great job of writing that but he came on the podcast and went into greater depth about the whys and the hows of that and 
you know, in retrospect, like it would have been pretty cool to have a couple people respond and kind of expand on that. And, but, you know, it was still pretty great to get Tim White, who had been like on every newspaper in the world, describing why he did that at, at much greater depth. Spinning it forward, what are the what issues are most top of mind for you, especially for the more invisible learners in the ecosystem and the institutions that serve them? What are you going to be focusing on in, in your newsletter um, and what you're thinking on what our listeners should be paying attention to? It's interesting for me. I feel like my focus as a journalist has narrowed when it comes to higher ed. Like I I read inside higher ed and I, I feel kind of sad that I can't, I don't know the president of X liberal arts college. I've, I've, I've gone cold in my, my understanding of certain aspects of the very complex, enormously huge higher ed industry. I'm, I'm much more focused on open access institutions entirely, really, and those students. But I've also broadened my focus just as much as I've narrowed it, you know, into the workforce and K-12. Like I, I didn't think I would ever be doing K-12 again. I did it a tiny bit many, many years ago, but the themes are similar. And, you know, one of the things I would say that feels like this era, right? Like we're coming out, we're out of the pandemic, (laughs) I guess. The impacts, certainly not. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, the pace of change is probably going to keep going really fast. And it uh, has a lot to do with AI and other things too. But I also feel like we kind of know what the problems are. We definitely know what the problems are for low-income students and underserved Americans, frankly. And I think we know a lot of the solutions, like maybe not you and me, but people do. And I've heard a lot of them. I feel like there's a coalescing around, you know, the Raj Chetty work, Opportunity, what's it called again? Opportunity. Opportunity Insights. Opportunity Insights. Yes. Thank you. Uh, At Harvard. You know, they... They have shown what what we all kind of knew, that social capital means more than the quality of education. That is a very powerful and almost crazy to say sentence, but it's true. The data is pretty incontrovertible. And the question to me in this moment is like, if we kind of know what the problems are and generally how to fix them, how do we start doing it? Where are their, I hate the word scalable, but I don't have a better one, interventions to help low-income people get the help that I got growing up? It costs a lot of money, by the way. Talking to people about the wraparound services that are required to help people, not just complete, but to complete and to move into a career. And unfortunately, not just move into a first job, but move into a career, a second and third job. That stuff, like I'm hopeful because I feel like there's agreement and bizarrely nonpartisan. Like, honestly, like as my beat has narrowed, I'm in this weird place where it doesn't feel very partisan. Like I can't tell. I interviewed the governor of Missouri recently, uh, Michael Parson. He's very conservative. And I caught myself in the interview being like, he sounds like a progressive. He's just using slightly different words, you know, like there is a lot of opportunity there, but it's going to take a lot of money. I think about this one a lot, economic and social mobility. We all have heard those words. What has to happen for somebody to move up? Somebody else has to give something up. We all remember what happened when Obama tried to drop 529 plans. I think that lasted three days. One of those things that we know, like, sorry, they're just not justifiable. 
that money is not well spent. That tax benefit goes to largely rich people. And we should probably spend it on Pell or something else. So those sort of decisions that, let's be honest, no political party can really do easily, but they kind of have to do it. I very much agree that we're seeing a coalescing around certain issues. If you look at the states, for instance, that have changed their standards for public sector jobs, in many cases to drop the bachelor's degree requirement, that includes red states like Utah and blue states like Maryland and purple states like Pennsylvania. That's heartening. But uh, anytime you're talking about things that require money, like you were just talking about, you're probably envisioning some kind of role or requiring some kind of role for government in some way. And it's hard not to worry about the dysfunctionality of our representatives in actually getting things done, even things where there might be philosophical agreement. Any last thoughts about the work we've done at The Key and what we should be thinking about for our next 100 episodes? We like to say, that we, you know, I'm a, I'm an old school journalist and I'm not an advocate and I am just trying to make sense of complicated issues. And, and, you know, I think the, the podcast kind of was proof of that. Like if you listen to like us right now, like I don't have the answers. And I think I really liked the way we approached it without an agenda. And the only agenda being, let's try to focus on low income and forgotten students. And like, so keep doing that. And, and, you know, I think to your point of dysfunction in our really, really dysfunctional political discourse beyond Washington, like it doesn't have to be that zero sum game. Like I just read this incredible study that like people who are younger than I am, who grew up in a time of not incredible growth in this country tend to be more zero sum for good reason. Like if you're, if you're a, a millennial even, Buying a house was not the experience that you and I had. And it's hard to underestimate how important that is. So like that makes it even harder to be nuanced about things like college degrees versus skills-based hiring or some of these really tough issues. And I think the really depressing and incredible piece that the New York Times ran recently by two Princeton economists about the gap in life expectancy being 8.5 years between people without a four-year degree and with a four-year degree. Like, what is the answer to that? All the things. It is not, well, you're a bad person who wants people to die younger if you think four-year college isn't for everyone. And they say that in that piece, by the way. It's a fascinating, I, I would, it's required reading for anyone who covers this mm-hmm. stuff or cares about it. You know, I think maintaining that nuance And, you know, like to your point, like, yeah, Washington's probably not going to save us, especially as we head into 2024. Um, But the states might, you know, like they're like states are closer. Like they they don't get to they have to balance budgets. They have employers saying, hey, we're not coming here unless you find a way to help your workforce get education and skills. So I, I do think you see more nuanced, complex solutions emerging in the states. I've written recently about the Alabama talent triad, which if you haven't checked it out and there's not much on the internet yet, it is the most incredible 10 year project to try to close gaps between education and jobs that I've ever seen. And Alabama is, is a, is a red state that you wouldn't think of again, doing things that are really aimed at progressive ideals. A lot of what they're doing feels to me that it would sell in California or Maryland as well as Alabama. 
That was Paul Fain, the originator of the Key Podcast, and now the brains behind the newsletter called The Job. It was great to take that quick trip down memory lane with Paul and to take his insights into account as we get ready for episodes 101 and beyond. I'd welcome thoughts from any of you on the themes that we should turn to here. Don't hesitate to reach out to me at doug.letterman at insidehighered.com with your ideas and recommendations for topics we should explore and guests we should interview. That's all for today's episode. I'm Doug Letterman, and until next time, stay well and stay safe.